Jesus, thank you for the gift of your church. Thank you for your blood-bought people. Um, thank you for your spirit who guides the church. And uh, thank you for being head of the church. And so we, we ask that as we think about the church, uh, what it is and our role in it, pray that you would help us to be grateful for what you have done for us and how we can be a part of continuing uh, the work of proclaiming what you have done. And we ask this in your name. Amen. So I, I don't have slides this week. Um, so if you have your notes, you can pull that up because there will be a couple of times when I have like a lengthy quotation. So it is easier to follow along if you do that. Um, so apologize for that. But here's the big idea of um, the lecture today. So the big idea is that the church is a necessary reality. The church is necessary. And then questions for application would be, if that's true, if the church is necessary, how important of a role do I assign to the church in my understanding of my discipleship to Jesus? Or you might ask, uh, what misconceptions about the church do I have that, need, that maybe I need to correct? And uh, I have a verse there from 1 Peter chapter 2, where Peter says, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And then he urges them as sojourners in exiles or sojourners and strangers to abstain from the passions of the flesh. It's a key verse on the church. So, uh, as I said in my email, uh, the doctrine of ecclesiology, the church, the ecclesia is the called out ones. The doctrine of the church is a huge uh, topic and... Um, as a young seminarian, I thought ecclesiology was uh, kind of marginal, like it didn't matter, like it's just about church polity, and uh, people have different opinions about how the church is structured, but that's all it is, and I was very wrong. <laughs> the church is very important, and I think the church, or the doctrine of the church, has been neglected, especially in uh, for 20th century evangelicalism on, we've uh, opted for often what's called pragmatism, what works. We do what works without really thinking theologically behind uh, what does the Bible tell us about what the church is and how it operates. So what we're going to focus on today, there's tons. We could talk about offices in the church, church polity, uh, things like that. So we don't have time for that. So today we're just going to focus on the nature of the church, what is a church, and then uh, sacraments or ordinances, so baptism and the Lord's Supper. So 
we'll start with what is the church? And I'll just put this question to you. We can have some engagement here. Uh, what is the church? How would you define it? And maybe you would start by saying what the church is not. So what would you say? Okay. He said it's not a building. What do you mean by that? <laughs> so, in my understanding, like the big C church is like the believers overall of the world, and like we are the church, like the what I'm learning. Whereas, like, my church, what we're saying is like where you like live and live your body and you kind of live your faith. Mm-hmm. So universal church, Catholic church, um, doesn't mean Roman Catholic church. It means universal Catholic church, all times, uh, all peoples, all places. That's the universal Catholic church. Um, And then, yeah, we would say this is a local church. It's a manifestation of the universal church, but it's embodied in this particular community, local church. Anything else? What is a church? Good. So yeah, what are what are some? Um, I know Brenda in her prayer this morning even mentioned names for the church. So body of Christ would be one. What else? But congregation. Okay. Any other metaphors or words that the Bible uses? Bride, the wife. Yeah. Yep. First Peter two chosen race, royal priesthood, um, flock, a family, brothers and sisters. So, um, think of Christian challenge or collegiate ministry. Sometimes they're called parachurch ministries. Organizations like challenge, crew, navigators, Uh, Or passion conferences, is that still a thing, passion? (laughs) Maybe that's outdated. Together for the gospel, those kinds of conferences. uh, What makes those different from a church? Are they different? So a question, somebody, somebody read Matthew 18, verse 20. Somebody have it? It's pretty much what the verse is. Thanks. Yeah, for where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. So my friend Gage, he's Catholic. I run with him in the mornings. We often talk about spiritual stuff. We talk about the creeds, talk about the early church fathers. When Gage and I are running together, are we a church? No? Okay. Why not? 
Okay. Everyone hear that? Basically? Yeah. So he said, no, it's not a church because the church has a structure. Uh, there's an order to the leadership of the church. There are things like discipline, things that the church does that formally makes it a church. So uh, coffee with friends talking about Jesus doesn't constitute a church. Uh, a Bible study, a small group, uh, those things do not replace the church. Um, you might say, okay, is there a difference of two members of the same church gathering over coffee to read the Bible and pray together? It's not, you know, properly, they could be considered an outpost of the church, sort of, but they're not, for that purpose, they're not gathering as a church. Uh, so what constitutes a church in that sense is it is a gathered community uh, which gathers to do something, to proclaim the gospel through the proclamation of the word and through the practice of ordinances or sacraments, baptism, Lord's Supper. Um, so it's not to say that the church ceases to be the church if certain people are absent, um, or out of town, the church acts as a unified body, even with members that are absent. Uh, think of Congress or the Senate that functions like this. It's still functioning as a unified body, even though a senator may be gone. Um, and as Matt highlighted, um, and we'll talk about this, the wider context of Matthew 18 is church discipline. So. Church is not equal to mere fellowship, though fellowship occurs in the church. The church is not equal to mere community, though the church fosters community. There are plenty of other uh, social groups and institutions that foster fellowship and community, but it's not a church. So the spin class at the Y that Stacy leads, <laughs> and that I never go to on Monday nights anymore, <laughs> that's not a church. Uh, fellowship, yes, perhaps even Christian fellowship at the YMCA, but it's not a church. Or in my community, there's that buzzword, uh, so I'm a runner, and uh, they'll call it the church of the long run on Sunday mornings. So even secular culture is viewing the nature of the church in purely horizontal terms. It's just something that fosters community, quote-unquote, and fellowship. And so they define it in terms of utilitarian purposes, which means you're using it for some end. You're using it for your desire for community, relationship, or belonging. And so we... We go astray if we think about the church in utilitarian terms like that. So the church is not merely a stand-in for belonging, fellowship, relationships, as important as those things are. The church fosters those things, uh, and those things are important for human flourishing. Uh, 
But the point is, the community is something concrete, something particular. Um, So, as Claire said, we will speak of a a visible-invisible church distinction. Universal church, local church. The invisible church is the Catholic universal church throughout time. Uh, The invisible church is also used to describe, like, the church, how God sees it. So uh, those who are truly uh, regenerate, born-again believers. Only God is the one who, who knows people's hearts who are truly born again. And he says the wheat and the tares grow up together. And then at the time of harvest, that'll be the time we know who was legit and the separation. Um, but you only ever come into contact with the universal church through the local church, a particular church. So as Wendell Berry, he's a poet and author, uh, he talks about uh, this notion of a global citizen. And he says, there's no such thing as a global citizen. He said, there is no such thing as a global village, no matter how much No matter how one may love the world as a whole, one can live fully in it only by living responsibly in some small part of it. So, again, with this idea of the church, the only way that you come into contact with the reality of the universal church is through a local particular body, a congregation. So, the church is not gathering over coffee with friends. So let's look at church discipline as the wider context of that verse in Matthew. So somebody this time read Matthew 18, 15 through 20. Thanks. So we're saying two friends gathered over coffee to discuss and read the Bible is not the church. That's a misunderstanding of verse 20. It's a very thin understanding of verse 20 because verses 15 through 20 give us the larger context behind what Jesus means by when two or three are gathered. And what he's getting at is Jesus is giving the church authority. That's what the binding and loosing is about. He's giving the church authority, and um, so this passage defines the process of what we call church discipline. And and here, this is a side note, but it's important to remember that church discipline is always aimed at reconciliation and restoration of the one who has gone astray, the one who has sinned. So the passage um, 
here doesn't necessarily define what the church is, but it, it's defining what the church does. And church discipline is part of what the church does. So the church are the people of God who are the gathered community under the lordship and authority of Christ. That's what it means to be gathered in his name under his authority. So it signifies people who have come together under some mutual agreement, you might say covenanted together, to walk in obedience to Christ. And then Jesus gives us uh, outlines for how we should go about restoring someone who's gone astray. And the process in the military, we call it a chain of command. Um, but the process for church discipline is kind of like this chain of command. So not everything makes its way all the way up to the commander's office. Things need to be resolved at the lowest level, at the supervisory level, uh, before it works its way up the chain. And that's what really Jesus is describing here. So it starts one-on-one, -on -one, then you bring in um, another believer, two or three, and so forth, and you bring it before the church. So he's describing this process of uh, discipline happening at low levels. So do, <clears throat> do we practice church discipline at River? Yes, regularly. Uh, now rarely, and this is a good thing, does it lead to what's called excommunication. But we, you know, we can get fuzzy on this. Don't confuse church discipline with excommunication. They're not the same thing. Excommunication is one facet of church discipline. It's the apex of church discipline. The goal, again, is always restoration and reconciliation. But the fact that excommunication is rare is good because that means there's teach teachability, repentance, things like that, and so forth. So don't conflate church discipline with that expression of church discipline. Church discipline is happening at low levels, one-on-one, -on -one, perhaps with a small group leader, church staff, elders. Uh, so you can think of it as preventative church discipline is training for godliness together, calling each other to account. And when you, um, that's why membership is important because when you become a member, you're agreeing to like Rodney preached this morning, engage in those hard attitudes um, with one another. You're, you're opening yourself up to a greater level of accountability. Um, but that's something that's a mutually agreed upon thing of membership. So here's the bottom line on what the church is versus what the church isn't. Uh, you can gather for edifying fellowship even a worship night of praise music in your living room, uh, but that's not the church. Small group is not the church, though it's a ministry of the church. Those are subsets of the church. But properly understood, the church gathers on the Lord's Day, Sunday, to commemorate Jesus' resurrection. We gather to worship the triune God through the reading of scripture, teaching, proclamation of the word, and the right administration of sacraments or ordinances and things like church discipline. So some important points to think about. Uh, the church is a divine, not a human institution. 
the church is a divine, not a human institution. It's of divine origin. The church is not a social project. The church is not United Way. Uh, the church is not a building. Um, as is it Harrison? As Harrison said, the church refers to people. So, of course, the church is comprised of humans. However, the church is not, in terms of its origin and constitution, its establishment, it is not of human origin. The church is a divine institution. And that means the church is not a business, and it shouldn't be run like a business. So we don't look to business models to determine how a church should operate. We ought to look to Scripture to give us that guidance. The church is not a school. It's not a government agency or bureaucracy. The church originates and is constituted by God. Here's a quote from uh, John Webster. He's a theologian, British theologian, who died a few years ago. He said, the church is not constituted by human intentions, activities, and institutional or structural forms, but by the action of the triune God realized in the Son and Spirit. So the church originates in the eternal, wise counsel of God as he decides to save and redeem a people for himself. And he accomplishes the gathering of that people to enter into covenant relationship with himself through the Son and the Spirit. The Son who accomplished our salvation, the Spirit who applies the benefits of that salvation to us. So it's a gathering, it's a work of the triune God gathering us to himself. So as we learn about the church, what it is, what it does, um, all of that needs to be governed by scripture, which is the triune God's self-revelation of himself to us. It's there that we find how God has designed his church to operate and what the church is to do. I wanted to read, um, I was reading this this morning. This is John Owen. He's a Puritan theologian. <coughs> And this was on the Holy Spirit, but this demonstrates how closely connected, even so the beginning of this class was the Holy Spirit, then it was the work of salvation, now we're talking about the church, but how interconnected the work of the Spirit is in um, the work of salvation and gathering of people. And uh, here's John Owen, he's talking about Jesus's ascension so after his resurrection, he ascends, um, but he tells them, the disciples, um, not to, this is Owen, he says, not to engage in the public work of building the church whereunto he designed them until that promise were actually accomplished toward them. So he's saying, you know, wait until the Holy Spirit um, is poured out before you start your work of the ministry. And he says, you will receive power uh, when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses to Jerusalem, Judea, and the ends of the earth. So he's telling them to wait until I pour out the Spirit. Um, but here's what he says about the Spirit and its role in the church. Um, so he says, 
And herein lay and herein doth lie the foundation and the ministry of the church as also its continuance and efficacy. So what that means is the spirit is the foundation, the continuance, and what makes the church effective is the role of the spirit in the church. Um, So I think that's helpful. Um, And then he goes on. He says, here lay the foundation of the Christian church. The Lord Christ called his apostles to the great work of building his church and the propagation of the gospel in the world. Of themselves, they were plainly and openly defective in all qualifications and abilities that might contribute anything to that end of themselves. But whatever is wanting, whatever is lacking in themselves, whatever light, wisdom, authority, knowledge, utterance, or courage, he promise promises to supply them, and this he would not do nor did any otherwise but by sending the Holy Spirit unto them, on whose presence and assistance alone depend the whole success of their ministry in the world. So he's saying, okay, the apostles, that's why he told them to wait until the Holy Spirit was poured out on them, because if they tried to do anything of their own, it would be defective, ineffective, inefficient. Um, and so he's, he's talking about the necessity of the Spirit for constituting and guiding the church. So this means the church is not optional. So yes, you have options. You can decide on which church to associate with in membership. But for the Christian, church membership is not optional. So there can be no such thing as a Christian uh, who hates the church or doesn't want to have anything to do with the church. Christ loved the church, gave himself up for her, Ephesians 5. And so if, if we say we hate the church, right, we're hating something the Lord gave himself up for. We're hating people he bled and died for. And so Paul routinely uses the image of the church as a body, the body of Christ. The members are body parts. And so on this understanding, an unchurched Christian is like a dismembered body part lying around. And it's kind of a gross image to think about. What is a a dismembered body part? What is it? Well, it's lifeless. It's just flopping around. There's my arm. Not doing anything. It's dismembered. It's disconnecting. It's disconnected from a living organic body. Uh, That's a nasty image, but that's the reality. So the church is not optional. And as I said, you you come into contact with the universal church through a particular local church. So the church is a necessary reality. As I said at the beginning, uh, I used to think this teaching on the church was unimportant, um, but I was very wrong. 
John Webster again says the church is not simply accessory or accidental. So in other words, the church is not optional. It's bound up with the logic of the gospel. So God has manifested who he is uh, by being the kind of God who creates and calls a people to himself to be their God. And we shouldn't think of this as God creates us because he needs us to be God. God's fully alive in himself, fully sufficient in who he is as the self-sustaining God, but he acts in the world as a God who saves and redeems a people for himself. So the church are those who have been called, born again, justified, sanctified, glorified in Jesus. And so the church is the internal logic of the gospel. So you can't have the gospel without a church because the gospel by its nature is the proclamation of what God has done to redeem and sanctify a people. And so it creates a people and brings them to God. The gospel creates the church. So Jonathan Lehman, he says, those who love the gospel will love a church. Those who forsake every church effectively forsake the gospel. Because the gospel is the good news about what God has done to create a people for himself. So, those are just some introductory things to think about what is a church, what it's not. Uh, So, part of defining what a church isn't um, required us to describe activities of what the church does. Membership, worship, church discipline, things like that. But... um, when we go to define something, really we need to begin with its nature before we uh, define it in terms of its roles or its function. So that's backwards. Uh, So often ecclesiology, the study of the church, it begins with functions of the church, what a church does, its ministries, but that is to miss its nature. And nature is important because what you, who you are, what you do, sorry, what you do flows out of who you are. That's your nature. So I don't start defining uh, my nature with my role as a husband to Elizabeth. I have something more foundational to my identity than my role as a husband. Foundational to my identity is that I'm a male, embodied, image-bearer of God. So that's nature, and then your function flows out of that. So that's important as we think about the church. We don't just start by describing all the ministries that the church does. We have to start with what is it? What's its nature? Uh, The philosophical term for that is ontology, the study of being. So, uh, if you have your notes, and if you don't, sorry, but if you have them, page nine, um, there's a lengthy quote from Greg Allison on the church, and I don't think this was in this book, uh, but this is from his larger book on the church that's called Sojourners and Strangers, 
Um, it's a really great resource. And if, you, if this looks intimidating, he has a condensed volume called The Church and Introduction. And this series is really good, Short Studies in Systematic Theology by Crossway. Uh, it's a great introductory series. It's not an identical book. Um, some people just, like Stephen Wellam has another big book like this, and the small volume is basically a distillation of the big one. Uh, Allison's is actually a completely different book, similar concepts, but anyway, my point is, read this one if you don't want to read this one. But this quote comes from Sojourners. Here's his definition of the church. The church is the people of God who have been saved through repentance and faith in Jesus Christ and have been incorporated into his body through baptism with the Holy Spirit. It consists of two interrelated elements. The universal church is the fellowship of all Christians that extends from the day of Pentecost until the second coming, incorporated both the deceased believers who are presently in heaven and the living believers from all over the world. The universal church becomes manifested in local churches characterized as being doxological, logocentric, pneumodynamic, covenantal, confessional, missional, and spatiotemporal or eschatological. Some fun words there. <laughs> local churches are led by pastors, also called elders, and served by deacons possess and pursue purity and unity, exercise church discipline, develop strong connections with other churches, and celebrate, keyword, celebrate the ordinances of baptism and Lord's Supper. Equipped with the Holy Spirit, with spiritual gifts for ministry, these communities regularly gather to worship the triune God, proclaim his word, engage non-Christians with the gospel, dis uh, disciple their members, care for people through prayer and giving, and stand both for and against the world. So that's a comprehensive definition. Um, and then each statement in that book is basically a chapter in this book uh, that's expounded upon. But for our purposes, what time? We're going until 2.30 today? Okay, so for our purposes, we're just going to look at um, that middle section where he says the church, local churches are characterized as being doxological, logocentric, and all the rest. So uh, these are attributes or characteristics that um, comp comprise the church, its nature. So the first is doxological. Doxa comes from the Greek meaning glory, so doxology, praise God from whom all blessings flow. Uh, it's glory is what the word means. So that means that the church is doxological, means the church is oriented to the glory of God. All things exist for God's glory. We're created to praise God and give him the honor and glory that's properly due him. Psalm 19.1 says, The heavens declare the glory of God. Uh, Psalm 29 says, Ascribe to the Lord 
glory and strength, ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Um, and then the book of Ephesians talks about how um, God has predestined us for adoption to himself according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace. And then he goes on and he says that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. And later in the book of Ephesians, Paul says, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Or think of the 1 Peter 2, 9 passage that I read at the beginning. We exist to proclaim the excellencies of God, which is another way of saying we exist to proclaim his glory, his splendor his beauty. Second characteristic is logocentric. And logos is the Greek word meaning word. So we take that to be a reference to the sun, the eternal sun. So that the church is logocentric means it's centered on the incarnate word or logos, the inspired and the inspired word of God, Holy Scripture. So Genesis 1-1 and John 1-1 are playing with each other. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. So the eternal son assumed a human nature to save fallen humanity. The incarnation was the manifestation of the invisible God. So sometimes Jesus is referred to as the imago dei invisibilis, which means the invisible image of God. He is the image of the invisible God. That's Colossians 1.15. And the Bible says that Jesus is central to the church. He is the cornerstone. He emphasizes he is building his church. I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Jesus himself being the cornerstone, the most important stone in the construction of a building. It sets the alignment for the whole project. And then we are being built up as living stones, with Christ being the head. So Ephesians 1, 20 through 23, um, describes Christ as head of the church. All things have been put under his feet. He's Lord over all. So that's cosmic in scope. But he's also the great shepherd, the great high priest, the head of the church, which is his body. And then we also, also emphasize the word of God written. So that would be God's inspired self-revelation. Uh, that's how we know God. And because Scripture is inspired, it bears his authority. Scripture is from God, so it bears his authority, commanding what we are to do, believe, and so forth. Here's John Webster again. I like this quote. He says, Scripture is not the word of the church. The church is the church of the word. The church exists in space, which is made by the word. Accordingly, it's not a self-generated assembly. 
So scripture doesn't get its authority from the church granting its, its authority. The books already bear that authority. So the church recognizes what they already are. The third characteristic is pneuma dynamic. So pneuma is the word for breath or spirit. So this attribute or characteristic of the church just emphasizes uh, the, the work of the Holy Spirit in the church. So the church is gathered, created, gathered, gifted, empowered by the Holy Spirit. The Spirit is essential to everything the church does, as John Owen said. Uh, the church then, the fourth one, is covenantal. And this means the church gathers under the new covenant in relation to God and with each other. So the, this is the Baptist interpretation of things, but the church is a regenerate body. That means everyone in the church is born again. Uh, as per the new covenant, where God will write his law on our hearts. So all people of the new covenant have personal knowledge and relationship with the Lord. So the, the church as a new covenant community is comprised of regenerate people, people who have been born again, people who have new hearts. Uh, so there's an Israel church distinction and so we would have a difference uh, where we would look at Israel and we would say they were an ethnic group of a mixed spiritual status, believers and non-believers. But we believe the new covenant uh, properly is only comprised of regenerate members, people of the new covenant whose law has been written on our hearts. So the second aspect of covenantal would be in terms of membership, covenanting together to form a church. The church is also confessional. So um, don't think of confessing sins uh, here. That's not the sense I mean. The church is confessional in the sense that it's united by personal confession or profession of faith and a shared confession of the Christian faith through things like creeds, uh, confessions, also called statements of faith, specifying what it is we believe. That's what unites us. That's what it means to be confessional. Uh, the church is missional. So we are a people sent by God to proclaim the gospel and advance the kingdom. Uh, and if you want, we taught a whole class a year ago on the mission of God, which talked a lot about the missional nature of the church. And then the church is spatio-temporal or eschatological. So the sense here is the church is located in space and time, and we are resident aliens. We are sojourners and strangers. We are citizens of the city of men longing for the city of God. Uh, we have hope and a vision of our future. And, and so that is, uh, it is already not yet. 
the, the consummation of the kingdom of God is not yet here in fullness. So that's a little bit about the nature of the church. So we're going to shift to a topic I'm passionate about, and that is ordinances or sacraments. So Protestants have affirmed historically two sacraments in the life of the church, baptism and the Lord's Supper or communion. And Baptists historically have used the term ordinance to signal that the, these are practices that were ordained and commanded by Jesus. That's what the word ordinance means. Notably, Matthew 28, with the command to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, and the institution of the Lord's Supper, where the Lord says, we proclaim the Lord's death until his return. So, why did the um, early Baptists use the term ordinance? Well, 17th and 18th century Baptists were still very much in the thick of Reformation polemics. So, they had historical reasons for using the term ordinance so as not to create confusion regarding the meaning of those rites. Um, but there's a great book by another one of my professors, Michael Haken, um, called Amidst Us Our Beloved Stands, and the subtitle is Recovering Sacrament in Baptist Tradition. And um, so he looks at, you know, primary documents of these early Baptists, um, and basically what he demonstrates is they had a really rich, robust understanding of the spiritual significance of those two ordinances uh, more so than we typically think today. We tend to be afraid of the word sacrament uh, because we, maybe we associate it with what Catholics mean by that, the notion of infused grace that we talked about last week. Um, the medieval period emphasized this notion of ex opere operato, was a Latin phrase meaning uh, by its own operation or by the work performed. And so the sacraments are efficacious in infusing grace by the very act performed. Now, why did, why did they believe this? Well, this was in response to something called the Donatist controversy. And basically, the Donatists held that the efficacy of the sacrament depended upon the worthiness or the moral uprightness of the one administering it. So basically, you could have a dilemma, hypothetical dilemma. The priest could be a godly man or the priest could be a wicked man with hidden sin. And does that mean my baptism is then invalid? So it's a good question. Uh, but, I think they supplied the wrong answer, but um, for the sacraments, they decided no, the, the efficacy is not dependent on the moral status of the one performing it, but it's efficacious by the very work performed, ex opere operato.
So this is from the Catechism of the Catholic Church. Celebrated worthily in faith, the sacraments confer the grace that they signify. They are efficacious because in them Christ himself is at work. It is he who baptizes, he who acts in the sacraments in order to communicate the grace that each sacrament signifies. And then it goes on. This is the meaning of the church's affirmation that the sacraments act ex opere operato by the very fact of the actions being performed by virtue of the saving work of Christ accomplished once for all. So reformed theology, reformation theology rejects ex opere operato. So we don't, we have a different conception of grace. Again, there's that idea of infused grace um, versus imputed grace. So we have a different conception of grace. So we don't believe the sacraments confer grace, that is, infuse grace. And for them, faith is the faith of the church, not the faith of the individual. And so it's a proxy faith, a vicarious faith on behalf of someone else. I think contrary to New Testament evidence where persons being baptized express faith in Christ individually. But I would say we believe that the sacraments are means of grace and the benefits and blessings of those practices come to us only on the basis of faith. So they are God-ordained means of serving as concrete reminders of salvation that was accomplished for us. They are visual dramatizations of the gospel. They serve as testimonies of our faith in Christ's work. But faith is the key ingredient. Faith in Christ's saving work. So I don't have a problem using the term sacrament if your understanding of that is that these do not operate apart from faith. They're not infusing salvific grace that comes by faith. Uh, but I will affirm that they're a means of grace. There are God-ordained means to encourage us in our faith, um, to help us in sanctification and things like that. So let's look at baptism. Uh, I'm not going to address biblical support for uh, believers' baptism. I'm just going to assume that. But that's the idea that belief properly follows, con or baptism properly follows conversion and profession of faith. Uh, but I want to focus on baptism as a church ordinance, baptism as a church's act. Now, why is that important? Uh, I think in the 20th century, evangelicalism diminished the corporate aspect of baptism and reduced it to something that was just an individual private decision, uh, that that's all it's signifying. And I would say that's a distortion of baptism. That's an impoverished understanding of baptism and the demands of obedience to Christ. So I think we would do well to recover a communal corporate public aspect of what baptism is. And I don't think Baptists uh, 
realize today that historically Baptists were his, uh, persecuted people. So baptism was a public act of identifying with Christ, and baptisms would often take place in public, outside, in living water, so a stream or a pond, uh, and often they would do this quickly, evasively, sometimes with hecklers passing by or people passing by taking names. Um, and, uh, yeah, Roger Williams, not our Roger Williams, Roger Williams of uh, Rhode Island in early America famously got exiled to Providence. That's why he called it Providence. Uh, now, he didn't remain a Baptist. He's interesting story. But anyway, the point is, um, uh, to, to be baptized was something that the Congregationalists, the Episcopal Church, uh, really did, they, they did not like. Um, and so you would be uh, ousted from the community. And that still happens in other parts of the world today. Uh, but throughout church history, Christianity has been a minority group in a paganized culture. And so baptism is this public marker of identity. It's what sets these people apart. And often that comes at great cost. Um, I think, Akil, it was highlighted in your baptism of the cost of what that meant for you to publicly identify with Christ. At the, at the cost of what does this mean for uh, my family? Uh, when we go down into the waters, we identify with Jesus because he is worth it, even if it means welcoming persecution. So it's a public marker of identity. That's kind of lost uh, today. Um, I'm not lamenting that <laughs> necessarily. Uh, I don't think persecution is required for it to be uh, significant in a sense of identifying with Christ, but that's just been the reality. But the point is baptism is where faith goes public. Uh, baptism is the initiating oath sign of the new covenant. So it marks the entrance of somebody into the body of Christ. They're welcomed into the church. So baptism in the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit signifies covenantal initiation and identification with the triune God. It signifies that we eternally belong to him. So we come under the lordship and authority of Christ. We pledge ourselves to him. An important biblical passage concerning baptism is 1 Peter 3.21. And just before this, Peter's describing how God saved Noah's family from the waters of judgment. And then he says, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So again, we would say baptism itself does not save or infuse grace ex opere operato, but what this means is baptism is an act of faith as an embodied appeal for salvation. Baptism embodies the decision to repent and believe, 
So baptism signifies saving faith. And it's a dramatization of that decision of faith. Various passages signify baptism as a sign of our union with Christ. Specifically Romans 6, 1 through 4 is a very important passage. Uh, It speaks about being buried with Christ, identifying with him in his death, burial, and resurrection. And that's what the waters signify. They signify the, the waters of judgment. So when someone, when Pierce, little Pierce, seven-year-old Pierce, is baptized this morning, he's visually proclaiming the gospel, that Christ has taken the judgment against sin. He has taken the curse of the law on himself, and Pierce is united to him. Christ has died in his place, taking upon himself the condemnation of your sin. And so Christ has passed through the waters of judgment. And Christ is raised to life again, and you with him, because you're united to him in faith. So as we rise from the waters, we commit to obey all the Lord commands through grace. So baptism visually demonstrates the full satisfaction of God's wrath in the substitutionary death of Jesus. So it's, a, it's an enactment, a dramatization of the gospel. And because it marks the entry into the new covenant people, baptism is tied to church membership. So yes, baptism is personal. Uh, I emphasize the necessity of the individual's faith. But it's not private. Personal, but not private. Nor is it a family ordinance. It's not a family ordinance per se. It's a church ordinance. And uh, historically, there have been baptismal liturgies. I think those would be a welcome retrieval uh, in contemporary practice. And this is I, not the Lord. <laughs> um, But liturgies obviously included the recitation of the creed. That's what the Apostles' Creed was. It was a baptismal creed. And, you know, we believe in believer's baptism. What did they believe in? I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. So usually it was said in question and answer format, do you believe in God the Father Almighty? And then they would respond, with different responses. I do, I do. Um, So I think it's appropriate to ask the baptismal candidate a set of questions, and then the congregation together professes their common faith. Maybe they have the congregation as a whole recite the creed, followed by an affirmation from the congregation that the congregation will pledge to walk alongside that person in obedience to Christ. Uh, In the early church, They would baptize segregated men and women. Why did they do this? Well, they baptized nude, (laughs) Uh, which is funny to us. Uh, But really, it was beautiful because what they're doing, um, I I understand this would not work in our culture today, but (laughs) what they're doing is they're associating with Christ's humiliation on the cross, crucified naked. And... Uh, they go down into the waters, they renounce Satan and all his works, they pledge to obey Christ. Um, When they come up out of the waters, then they're given white robes, 
signifying righteousness, and sometimes they were given milk and honey. What are those symbols of? The promised land, the promised land of salvation that Christ has fulfilled. So um, I want to read something from what's called the apostolic tradition. Early, this is um, one of the earliest church liturgical manuals. It's a third century document uh, from Hippolytus, which was a church community in Rome. Um, but they describe this is how the early church received those who were about to be baptized. When those who are to receive baptism are chosen, their lives should be examined. That's a big, big thing. Whether they lived uprightly as catechumens. So basically there was this uh, multi-year discipleship process where they were instructed in the faith. And then before you were baptized, um, they're going to ask, you know, have you lived righteously? <laughs> um, that was their screening process to see if you were legit. So they asked whether they lived uprightly as catechumens, whether they honored the widows, whether they visited the sick, whether through in the performing of good works and in those who brought them bear witness that they have acted thus and that they should hear the gospel. Um, That wasn't the passage I wanted to read, but that was a good one. Okay, this was the passage I wanted to read. Now, at the time when the cock crows, they're at the water. So again, uh, often this would be uh, done at, on particular feast days, so Easter. So there's this all-night service, and then in the morning on Easter, again, signifying resurrection, um, they would baptize people that were coming into the church. So when the, when the cock crows, they're at the water, the water should be flowing, or at least running. That's what sometimes they'll say, living water. It should be so if there's no necessity, but if there is a continuous and sudden necessity, use any water you can find, and they should take off their clothes, so there's the nakedness. Uh, you are to baptize the little ones first, all those who are able to speak for themselves should speak. With regard to those who cannot speak for themselves, their parents, or somebody who belongs to their family should speak. And there is a footnote here. And um, he, he says this is likely in regard to legal guardianship. Uh, so baptism is this covenant vow. And so if you are a minor... You had to have the guardian grant permission, essentially. So um, I think the editor, the translator, I think is Catholic, um, but he's not using this to ground um, his argument for infant baptism. He's saying this particular reference is in something, reference to something different, legal guardianship. So this doesn't envision infants, it envisions children who can speak for themselves, but they're doing so under the authority of their parents or legal guardian, usually an uncle. Um, 
then baptize the grown men, finally the women, after they have let down their hair and laid down the gold and silver ornaments which they have on them, nobody should take any alien object down into the water. Um, he takes them one by one, asking them about their faith. So again, <laughs> faith is a key ingredient here. Uh, he says, I renounce you, Satan, and all your service and all your works and all your filth. Wouldn't that be great to see people say, I renounce you, Satan. Some even spit. They would spit on the water. They spit on Satan. And when he has made this profession, he is anointed with oil. Um, then he's handed over to the bishop or the elder who is to baptize him and stands naked in the water. Again, really awkward. And a deacon likewise goes down with him into the water. When the, one who, when the one being baptized goes down into the waters, the one who baptizes places a hand on him should say thus, do you believe in God the Father Almighty? So again, there's the creed. That's the Apostles' Creed. And he who's baptizing should reply, credo, I believe. Credo baptism. So let him believe, or let him baptize him once immediately, and they did triple immersion. So they baptized three times. Um, but anyway, he just goes through the creed. Um, do you believe in the Son? Do you believe in the Holy Spirit? It's, I believe, I believe, I believe. Um, and then they're anointed with oil and then um, given milk and honey and all the rest. Anyway, super interesting to, to learn about. So how, how would... Um, Contemporary churches, how do, how do we appropriate the best of that tradition? Um, I think we could incorporate some aspects of baptismal liturgies. Um, I think historically Baptist churches have done testimonies. That's part of our tradition um, where the candidate recites their testimony uh, or reads the testimony from the candidate. Um, but you could easily do a question-response thing. Do you trust in Jesus for your forgiveness of sins? I do. Do you forsake Satan and his works? I do. Do you intend with God's help to obey Jesus and walk with him, follow him as your Lord? I do. And then have the congregation recite the creed. And then after the recitation of the creed, um, then we welcome into the church. And we say, we welcome you into Christ's church. We charge you to nurture and love and assist him or her to be a faithful disciple of Jesus. Um, yeah, I don't know. Things I think about all the time. Uh, lastly, real quick, Lord's Supper. Um, debate throughout church history centers around how this should be celebrated and what's properly signified. Um, again, uh, last week I talked about how I hold to the spiritual presence view. Um, you can look at the notes. I'll just go through these quickly. Uh, transubstantiation is the view held by Roman Catholicism. Transubstantiation was proclaimed as official dogma in 1215 at the Fourth Lateran Council. 
and it, it depends on Thomas Aquinas and his uh, philosophy for its grounding. Uh, central to that understanding is this discussion of substance and accidents. So substance refers to the essence of something, um, the nature of existing in itself. Accidents are characteristics that are non-essential, accidental. So if it's accidental, it can be lost. So for the bread and wine in the Eucharist, which is a word that means uh, to give thanks, Eucharisteo, Jesus gave thanks, broke the bread, blessed it. Um, so for the bread and wine in the Eucharist, the accidents remain the same. So it looks like bread, smells like bread, tastes like bread, but the substance is changed into the body of Christ. And so for them, it is the real presence of Christ. There's something larger behind this, which is the Christ church interconnection, basically. The Roman Catholic Church is the ongoing incarnation of Jesus, the whole Christ, the totus Christi. Um, so it is the real presence of Christ. Um, what the Reformation debates were about with the Lord's Supper really boiled down to considering Christ's human nature and the fact that Christ is now ascended and seated at the right hand of the Father. So Christ is in a resurrected, glorified body in heaven, and we hope for his return. So if he is to return, how can we say that he is incarnate here and incarnate as the risen and ascended Lord seated at the right hand of the Father? So... Um, there's something in Christology called the extra. It's a cool doctrine. It's called the extra Calvinisticum. Uh, it's associated with John Calvin, but it doesn't originate with John Calvin. But here's what the extra is. Basically, it says Christ lives a divine life extra his human nature, outside of his human nature. So even as a baby in the manger, he upholds the universe by the word of his power. So in his divine nature... Um, as the Son, he's omniscient, he's omnipresent, um, but in his human nature, um, he's not omnipresent in terms of his physical body. But the point is, his physical body didn't... Um, limit that divine attribute. So the concern with the Lutheran position that gets called consubstantiation, think of it as in, with, and under the bread, the concern with that was um, Calvin was saying, yes, Christ is omnipresent, but he's omnipresent in such a way that's true to his human nature. Because if his human nature is omnipresent, then it ceases to be a true human nature. It, it becomes something not human. Does that make sense? So that's kind of what the extra is about. 
Um, so that's why Calvin insisted he must be spiritually present. Um, here's what the London Baptists wrote in 1689 on the Lord's Supper. They said, the supper of the Lord Jesus was instituted by him the same night wherein he was betrayed to be observed in his churches unto the end of the world. For, why do we do this? The perpetual remembrance, the showing of all the world, the sacrifice of himself and his death, confirmation of faith of believers and all the benefits thereof, for their spiritual nourishment and growth in him, and their further engagement to all duties that they owe him, and to be a bond and pledge of their communion with him and with each other. So there are five reasons they give to celebrating the Lord's Supper. It's, it's for the perpetual remembrance of Christ's sacrifice. It's a vivid reminder of that. That's the first reason. It also helps us firmly grasp in a tangible way what Christ has done for us. It aids in our spiritual nourishment and growth. It can serve as a time of recommitment, re-identifying, re-pledging ourselves to walk in obedience to Christ. And then it serves as a reminder of our union with him, an indissoluble union of assurance. And then there are debates, uh, open and closed communion, and what some call close communion. So open communion would be any Christian Baptism is not required, can partake of the Lord's Supper. Closed communion says that the Lord's Supper is closed to that local church membership and that membership being comprised of baptized believers. Um, I don't take either of those. I take what's called close communion which basically says any baptized Christian in good standing with their local church. So members of River can partake of the Lord's Supper if there was a visitor, so long as they're a baptized Christian in good standing with their church, they would be welcome to the table. Uh, so baptism is a prerequisite to the table. Um, and that's just been the historic practice of the church. Um, baptism is the initiatory rite. It logically precedes communion. If communion is practiced by Christians, how do you know who's a Christian? Well, they've been baptized. Um, what, what else is important about the supper? Um, it's a celebratory meal. It's not a time of morbid introspection. And so I think the proper position is seated, not kneeling. It's a feast. It's anticipating the wedding supper of the Lamb. So it's a time looking back, yes, but it's also looking forward. Um, what about Paul's command to examine yourselves? 1 Corinthians eleven twenty eight. Paul doesn't bar unworthy participants because by our own merits, nobody is worthy 
what Paul bars is unworthy participation, unworthy participation that would incur divine judgment. Well, what was unworthy participation? Wealthy being disrespectful to the poor, divisiveness, favoritism. So yes, it's a time of examining sins, but it's sins um, that are associated with divisiveness in the church body. Um, Common practice today is a time of confession of sin, morbid introspection. I don't think that's really what's in view with Paul's command to examine yourself. Uh, We don't confess sins to become worthy to participate. Um, Because again, the supper is a reminder of what Christ has accomplished for us. Uh, The examining yourself, I think, is for the purpose of detecting broken fellowship, divisive behavior, unreconciled relationships in the unity of the church because, again, it's a meal that signifies union with Christ and union with each other. And so, uh, if those sins are present, then I think you need to refrain and not partake and then decisively move to go act in being reconciled because it's a Uh, it's in such disharmony with what the intended symbol signifies. Um, So who who else should participate in the Lord's Supper? I would say it's not for small groups to do. It's not for Bible studies, not for youth groups, not for friends, not to practice privately at home. I changed my mind on this. Elizabeth's not here. I would tell it even if she was here. Uh, weddings. I, I took communion at my wedding. I've since changed my mind. I think that's wrong. Again, this is I, not the Lord. I would not take communion at the wedding. Why? Because I believe that the church ordinance is meant for the gathered community. And again, what is it signifying? It's supposed to signify the union that the congregation has in Christ. And instead, everyone is watching two people observe it in private. It's just, that's not what the symbol is meant to signify. So I've changed my mind on that. And uh, if I'm I'm, uh, presiding over a wedding, I will probably tell you, don't do communion, so, <laughs> or find a different pre- preacher. Uh, also, the Lord's Supper is not a funeral. It's not a funeral service. Is it serious? Yes. Should it be respectful? Yes. Uh, but it's a foretaste of a heavenly banquet. It's a time of celebration. It's a reminder of Jesus' victory over sin and death and the promise of the fullness of the kingdom. So, uh, I wish I didn't have to fly through that, um, but such as it is. So, what questions, uh, any concerns, protests?